Welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants. I'm thrilled to be here again with Kyle Marsh. Great to be with you. Great to be here. Thanks. And uh, you've just come back from an extensive tour of the Antipodes, uh, aka Australia, <laughs> and uh, you're now back in Brooklyn and uh, meditating on props. Yes, and other things, but mostly, <laughs> mostly props. So uh, set this set this conversation up, please. Okay, so the short version of the inspiration for this conversation is, as Raf mentioned, I just spent a lot of time in Australia and um, I took a lot of classes while I was there. My husband, who is a science teacher, was on a paid sabbatical and I joined him and took a sabbatical as well, which just meant that I wanted to fill my brain up with new information and new experiences and get out of my Pilates bubble. Um, and in the process of taking all of the classes and visiting all of the studios, um, I encountered a lot of occasions where um, there was just an excessive number of props being used in, that's the only way I can say it, um, <laughs> in, in classes to the point that the use of the props really did detracted from whatever the work of the class was trying to be, um, which got me thinking about um, just misconceptions that I see a lot of Pilates instructors and I think studios falling into around the idea of what it is that they think students or people actually want from their classes. Um, and then the other sort of sub part of this conversation um, that I got thinking about was the concept of friction, um, which is something that I think I've experienced being talked a lot about in business, um, but I think it exists in Pilates as well. And the way that we as instructors um, set up environments or scenarios in our classes. All right, so what do you mean by overusing props? Is there such a thing? I am going to answer this question with an example of something that I actually had to do. Um, so uh, picture yourself laying on a reformer on your back with your feet in the foot, in the straps. So feet in straps. But then underneath your pelvis is also a very squishy, sad ball. And then between your inner thighs is a magic circle but your heels are together, your feet are in frog, and in each of your hands is a two to five pound hand weight. And then you're being asked, yeah, I can repeat. Do you need me to repeat it? Is that, do we have an image of what's happening? <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, where's the foam roller in all this? Well, that happened too, but <laughs> there, there was a foam roller on a reformer, but I can talk more about that later. Um so just to recap, it's like on your back, on the reformer, squishy ball under pelvis, feet in straps, magic circle between inner thighs, heels are connected, and your hands are holding hand weights. And then my arms had to lift and lower with the weights. My legs somehow were trying to bend and lift and lower, and it just went really badly. <laughs> it... it uh... Gee, that's uh, I, I can just imagine getting into the start position was an expedition. That was actually all my, by itself. my favorite part of that class um, was actually watching. I waited because when I heard the instructions, I wanted to make sure I'd heard them correctly. Um, and my favorite part was watching the other 20 people in that class try to figure out how to get into this position um, and drop hand weights and every like fall off reformers. It was extremely exciting. Um, and in, in the beginning, I thought that maybe this was just like a really special day for this instructor and I wanted to give the benefit of the doubt. Um, but I was so curious that I had to go back and take another class. And it turns out that was the class with the foam roller um, right. on the reformer with the feet and straps, which I would love to hear somebody's justification for why they would make a choice like that. And I don't mean to make the person who made that choice feel badly. Um, but it did really set up the idea for me that in Pilates, quite often, I think we are making things way too complicated. Um, and that depending on what the goal 
of that whole setup and scenario was, I truly believe that there was a simpler, easier, more efficient, and more importantly, more effective way to put myself and all the other people into that class, into whatever movement that person wanted. Right. And, and, you know, I don't mean to throw stones here either because I've been there, you know, I've been that person. I don't think I've done that exact sort of combination of props, but I've certainly been guilty of like going too often to the prop cabinet uh, in my day. Um, And I, I wonder, I wonder how much this is uh, related to something what I see on social media, you know, pretty much every day, which is people doing, you know, really cool looking things on reformers, um, like interesting new variations of movements that I've never seen before that, you know, look great. But but when you think about it, you think like, oh, how long would it take to get into the start position for that movement? It's like, okay, you're doing kind of a side plank with your feet on the foot bar and you've got a box on the floor beside the reformer and your hands on the ref- on the box and you've got a strap one of the straps in your hand and it's like and that looks awesome you know doing overhead presses but then you're like oh but like imagine getting a room of 15 people you know of varying levels of ability and agility you know into that position like i can imagine that would be you know <laughs> very challenging and so i wonder if if we are you know, over-complexifying things for a couple of reasons. One is maybe we, it's like it looks cool, you know, and we kind of confuse what looks cool with what actually achieves a, a useful result for our for our clients. And secondly, I think maybe, and I wonder what you think about this, like I know I used to feel, a, a, when I was teaching 20 sessions a week, I used to feel an intense pressure to provide variety for my clients because you know of those 20 sessions there would be many times where i'd have a client come back for their second or third or fourth session in the week and i was like i can't just teach the same set of exercises i taught on monday you know and i don't know why i thought that in hindsight because when i think about my own practice i literally do the same six exercises like every single time for years (laughs) you know yeah um (laughs) Yeah, so what are your thoughts? Uh, Okay, well, I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because one of the things today before this, um, I got to train with my trainer, who is a personal trainer in the gym, and we were chatting about the fact that I was getting ready to come talk to you about this, and I was talking about how when I I pay my trainer money (laughs) to train with him, and like we do pretty much the same set of like 12 exercises every single time I work out with him. Um, and it's still extremely, it's like one of the most valuable things that I do in my week. And I don't care that we are doing deadlifts for the umpteenth time. Like there's that, it's just what we're there to do. Um, and I think that that is something that can be really valuable. Obviously I'm talking about a fitness setting, but it's really valuable in Pilates as well. And actually to sort of answer the first part of your thought, um, I, I kind of was thinking that I believe I've fallen into this trap before as well, where it's almost this idea that by adding more props or adding more variety, I'm actually increasing the value of what I'm doing to the person who is taking the session or the class and making them feel like they're getting more of their money's worth because they're getting to have this like variety of experience. But in reality, I don't think that that is true. (laughs) I think that if you're working on a really specific goal, or even if you have a very specific goal for a class, um, the, the variety and the number of sort of like whimsical elements that you bring in i.e. through props is not the thing that is going to make or break that experience for your students yeah i agree i think um for me when i used to to feel that intense pressure it was all coming from me no clients ever said to me oh how come we all doing oh are we doing footwork again you know no one ever said that to me (laughs) but i i felt like oh crap i've done footwork you know every class for the last three weeks I can't do footwork again you know um and and it was you know it's interesting to me now to sort of look back on that sort of that thought process that I had and I I I feel like I was 
confusing my job as an instructor and I felt like it was my job amongst other things, but I think primarily to entertain, you know, to provide variety for the clients. And I think that came because I viewed the class as what, you know, my product was, is I'm delivering an experience for these people. Whereas now I see much more, I'm actually delivering results for these people. You know, Mm -hmm. they want to get stronger. They want to have better mental health. They want to feel more flexible. They want to stand tall. All of these, you know, benefits, right? And that the experience actually becomes inherent within the 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 seeking of those benefits is you have to kind of challenge yourself and you have to get to this zone where it's really difficult and you're concentrating fully. And that's what, you know, John Howard still talks about is the, of being in the, like, but I can't remember if he used this same words, but basically the flow state that you mm-hmm. get where you're basically just existing and you're not thinking of anything really at all. And just, you're, you're just inhabiting your body in a, in a very present moment way and, you know, so I, I kind of felt like I needed to be in like the all singing, all dancing, you know, <laughs> uh, entertainer. Whereas now I realize, now I believe, my, my view now is that the actual, the entertainment often comes from the client's own internal experience. And to facilitate that is just basically you just need to get them into a state where they're, they're working hard and succeeding, but it's, they have to work for it. Yeah, I relate to all of that and agree and actually kind of related to what you were just saying the first thought that comes to my mind is um sort of the stages of motor learning that i was taught when i was teaching dance um and i don't know if these have changed actually because i haven't stayed (laughs) current on the research so you can correct me if this is not current but um what i remember is there were three of them and the first one was what they called the cognitive phase which was like the learning phase you're trying to take in all the information you're just trying to translate everything And then the second one was like associative phase where you're refining the information. And then the autonomous phase is actually this phase where you get to flow state. Um, And in order to, you have to go through all the first two to get to the third. And in adding so many, or well, I'll say it differently, by feeling the pressure or putting the pressure on ourselves to do something different every single time, there is to a certain extent in the context of Pilates, which a lot of us like to talk about as a system, it's this set or more or less set sort of repertory of exercises. We are maybe also interfering with our students and our clients' ability to eventually get to that autonomy stage, like the stage where they get to lay down on the reformer and all you say is the word footwork and they like know where to put their feet and they do the thing and then you say short spine and they know how to do it. And so, um, in putting this ridiculous pressure on ourselves as instructors to keep it fresh every time, you know, in a strange way where I think we're kind of taking away um, from allowing our students or our clients to actually get to that flow state. Yeah. Thoughts about that. Yeah. And to my knowledge, those stages of motor learning haven't changed. Um, And so the, the three stages are the verbal cognitive stage where basically you're learning a new movement and you, you kind of, you, you get verbal instruction, you know, put your foot here, lift your arm, you know, push, press the carriage away, et cetera. And, so, and the cognitive part is where you're thinking about it. You're like, you have to pay a lot of conscious attention to what you're doing. Uh, whereas as you become more skilled in anything, you, it requires much, you know, part of the definition of skilled movement is, is a low requirement for conscious attention. So in other words, you don't have to think about it. You know, if you're very good at driving or playing the guitar you don't have to think about what you're doing with your hands and feet while you do it it just kind of happens um and but and so that is true that there are those are kind of just stages of learning a skill so if you're learning say i don't know the, uh, you know feet in straps or the short spine say um that yeah there are stages where you'll the first early stages you won't be in flow because you'll be thinking about oh crap where do my legs go again um and uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of an inevitable part of it. But we can also um, sort of zoom in and you know, f- uh, break the movement down into chunks that we can go through those three stages of learning on a smaller scale within even a single session. So if we said, okay, instead of just going like straight into doing the full short spine, we're going to do just maybe liner backs and do like lift and lower the legs right? Just, just that super basic thing. Maybe like for the first three reps, there would be some verbal cognitive, okay, lift your legs higher, bring your feet together, 
you know, all of that kind of stuff. But then pretty soon, you know, someone can get the, the, the hang of it and they can get into the zone. They can just practice that basic movement, you know, and become fascinated by the experience they're having and the sensations they're, you know, that are, you know, flooding their, their body and, you know, the move, how they can learn to control the straps more precisely and the movement of the carriage more precisely and that they can get into the zone very quickly. So this is not something that's like for the first six months you're learning, you can't get into flow. It's like maybe the, for the first three reps, you know, you can't get into flow. Right. And so kind of connected to that idea, going back to something you had mentioned earlier, you mentioned the idea of transitions, which is something I got to thinking a lot about over the last few months as I was taking all these classes. Um, and the in a group class setting specifically, um, in my experience as a student and in my experience as a teacher, the most amount of time lost tends to be with however many transitions you choose to put into that class. And um, that is a huge moment of friction or a barrier that can occur um, depending on how you're trying to do that. So back to my experience that I was talking about at the beginning with all these props, it was like the amount of information and cueing that had to happen to even get everyone in a class into position before we could even start moving really interrupted the ability to go through any stages of motor learning. Like I would say that in the scenario I was talking about earlier, it, it was like a good, I even looked at the clock. It was like 12 minutes, like the whole experience from beginning to end to get us, well, we were moving, but it was like before you could like figure out how to balance, before you could figure out what the choreography was, getting the self into position, all the people who needed help. So in a 50 minute class, like that is a huge chunk of time that has just been wasted. And I, I don't know how many people would have walked away from that scenario feeling satisfied because I think another important part, whether you're using props or just Pilates equipment, um, you want your students to feel successful to a certain extent. Like it's important to challenge them, but if they don't get to walk away from an exercise feeling like they know what they could work on or what was hard or that they had some level of success, it's not going to feel satisfying. And then motivation wise, it kind of lowers the the desire to pursue that activity or specific exercise again. Yeah, and I think it, that just really comes back to, you know, the a, a recurring theme, which is that mastery really revolves around doing the basics exceptionally well. And, you know, as an instructor, doing the basics exceptionally well, as a, as a practitioner, as someone doing the client doing Pilates, you know, mastery, a sense of mastery comes from noticing that you're getting better at doing the things that same thing you did last week. Oh, now this, this week, short spine is flowing more, you know, easily for me. I'm not bashing the carriage on the stopper every time I, you know, my legs go up in the air or whatever, or even footwork, you know, you can master footwork and that gives a sense of progression and that sort of inherent, like uh, intrinsic motivation that arises from a sense of improvement, improving your own skill and your ability to, to do the, the activity. And I think we often, in not just in Pilates, I think humans often fall, fall for the, the mental kind of shortcut that more kind of fancy stuff equals more mastery or more effectiveness. And, you know, I just, I think of like, little kids, you know, four-year-olds dressing up as superheroes or whatever. It's like the appearance of the thing is not the same as the essence of the thing, you know. Um, so, I, yeah, I think there's a, there's also this, that idea that we have that um, you know, complicated is equals better. And if, if, you know, we, once we learn how to teach footwork, the next thing is learn how to teach a more complicated move, not get even better at teaching a really simple move. Yeah, like more stuff equals better right. is kind of the the variety. Or like I was um, giving Raph an example before we popped onto record about like education and how every time people are like, oh, let's improve education in the U.S., they'll they they like flush schools with cash and buy a ton of computers and smart boards and install all of them instead of like 
giving teachers professional development opportunities or things that will actually improve education. Um, And so we're kind of running up against the same thing, I think, in Pilates, where it's like, oh, the more variety in my class or the the more opportunities I give people to touch different things, the more exciting it will feel and like the more satisfied they'll be. Um, A thought that I had, though, you had said something earlier about doing the same thing over and over again. And I just wanted to name that. I have talked, so I know that in the classical repertory, it's quite common to teach the exact same order every single time. And something that I've heard um, from other instructors is that they're like, oh, I'm just so sick of everything that I've been teaching. Like I'm bored with what I'm teaching. And that is why I want to bring all of these devices into my class. Um, And I think that's an interesting challenge like emotional challenge to unpack because I I personally have very much had that experience in the past um and I'll say that for myself when I had to really examine that a little bit closer I think that the reason that I was bored is because I wasn't outside of the choreography of the exercises I didn't really understand a lot about what was happening in a scenario like I couldn't I didn't have the ability at that time to talk to clients about why doing footwork every single time was a good thing for them even if we do it every single time um and I just want to name that as something that I think that exists and as a challenge and I'm curious Raph if you have any thoughts about that yeah absolutely I've experienced that and I guess I'm a little bit embarrassed. Actually, not really embarrassed, but I mean, I think this is maybe something I should be embarrassed about to say that. Like when I've when I've taught, you know, particularly when I've taught like many classes in a week or many classes in a row, and you, I just got to a point where I'm just like, I'm kind of bored and I'm kind of like fatigued and kind of like mentally. I mean, I still love my clients, love teaching, but just like struggling to concentrate and not think about just like, oh, wouldn't it be, I wonder what I'll cook for dinner tonight or, you know, what movie should I watch when I finish work? Well, it's very, you know, and so for me, it sometimes became, I knew when I was teaching too much, you know, like if uh, that that would be an indicator for me that I'm teaching too much. Um, but then like you, you, you kind of do stuff to entertain yourself in the sessions and that might become in the form of, just like bantering with clients or other instructors walking past the room or might come in the form of telling like anecdotes about your weekend or it might come in the form of like making up crazy, you know, left field, you know, exercise sequences. (laughs) Hey everyone, let's try this new thing tonight that I've never, never done before. (laughs) But I'll just try it on you (laughs) right now. Um, I want to see if you can do it. (laughs) Yeah. Or just getting obsessed with like, oh, what song am I going to play next on my playlist? You know, I don't want to play that one. I'll skip ahead three songs or whatever. It's like anything but focusing on (laughs) helping the clients achieve their, you know, their experience and their goals for the session. Because just basically because just of boredom and fatigue and kind of mental, you know, overload, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I've been there too. I'm not going to lie. I've definitely taught things where you're like, well, I wonder how this is going to (laughs) go. Like (laughs) it happens for sure. Yeah. I think um, the antidote for that for me was one, not teaching too many classes. Like for me, I, I can sustain 20 a week, like for decades, but 25 is like, uh, you know, you won't get the best of me. And then the next week, every class will be like slightly grumpy and slightly forgetful. And I'll be like, did we already do footwork? Or, you know, was that, yeah. was that just yesterday or whatever? Um, uh, and that's when you get clients coming up to the, at the end of class and go, you know, we did that whole sequence on the right side. We didn't do the left, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> um, and, you know, dear listener, hopefully, Hopefully you you share my shame on that one, or you've already you know maybe not shame, but you've hopefully you've been there too. I think I think that's fairly normal. Um, but I think for me that's an indicator that I was I'm teaching too much. But that I think that then I think what I've I've learned to do over the years is is seek satisfaction not in the activity of not to see myself as somebody whose job is to come up with creative flows but to facilitate a journey for the client. That journey is a journey towards the results. It's the experience they have along the way, you know, um, 
and that I, even though I'm teaching footwork for literally the 50th time this week, it's like, well, this is a different person than the person I taught last session. And even if it's the same person that was here on Monday, they've, they're in a, it's, it's not the same person because they're older and they've had experiences in the meantime and maybe they had a good sleep or a bad sleep or, you know, they've got, they're not the same person, I'm not the same person. And so, and maybe they're just that little bit more skillful than they were last time around and they can cope with just a tiny bit more refinement or subtlety in, in the way that they're, you know, working on the exercise. So I think learning to take my entertainment and my sort of delight in teaching in those aspects rather than, again, kind of thinking of it as a kind of a performative thing where it's up to me to deliver this sort of entertainment. It makes me think of a conversation I had with Anula ages ago about Pilates porn where we were talking about like the performative aspect of doing Pilates, you know. But I think there's also, for me anyway, there's been a performative aspect of teaching Pilates where it feels like like I'm up on stage and this is, I've got to you know, be hyped and have a coffee beforehand and, you know, entertain and all that. And I think there is something. Like no one wants a teacher who's like sour and, you know, doer and like in a bad mood or whatever. But but I think uh, I, I feel now that when I teach, I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about the client and I want the client to not even remember what I was wearing or any particular thing I said, except maybe something I said that gave them an insight into their own practice and like, oh, I never realised this thing about how I move my leg or whatever, you know. So I think it's just moving the focus off me and on onto the client. And I'm not sure if that's just like a normal part of maturing as an instructor or if it's like just my unique journey. Like, is that something that, that has happened for you? Yes. I'll be really honest and say that when you were talking about uh, teaching as a performative act and conversation that I had with a friend or many people actually who were like former dancers who transitioned into teaching. And I remember having a conversation um, where one of my friends at the time was like, yeah, I love teaching. It's just like being on stage. Um, And I relate to that in that Yes, I can see the parallels and have, you know, in the context of teaching, I would say that I've had this experience a lot more with teaching really large workshops or rooms that are, you know, 50 people or more where you just aren't in a position where you can connect one on one um, in the same way that you may be in a smaller class that that can feel very performative. And there is absolutely a performative aspect of that task. However, to your point from earlier, (laughs) Um, that's, I, I don't think that's the best thing to focus in on or make the primary focus of what you're trying to accomplish in that moment, because it's not the thing that is going to necessarily give your students, um, the best experience, the best results. Um, all, but that being said, the other sub part of that is that there is something to be said for personality. And I know that there, um, I heard conversations, you've had them on the podcast too, um, you know, there is some people do develop followings and there are teachers who are just like really charismatic or they have qualities that draw certain people to them. And I don't want to say that I think that that's a bad thing necessarily, but that if you are focused when you're going into a room happens to be like treating this class like a performance that maybe we can search for other better ways for you to connect with your students and your clients. Yeah, I agree that the way that'll feel in a way that'll feel satisfying for right. you. I agree that there is a performative aspect, <clears throat> one way or the other, but I just think it should be secondary to the the service aspect of of what we're doing. And I, I agree about the um, you know obviously some people are more charismatic and and we we form an attachment or an attraction to certain people more easily than others. You know, just depending on our particular kind of personalities and whatever. Um, but I've often found that I'm attracted to people and I say attracted in just like attracted as a human, you know, to that person's energy. Um, like often I don't even need to like hear someone speak or anything. It's like, I like this person, you know, you kind of like, like when you're a kid in six years old in grade school, he's like, oh, this is my best friend. We've never spoken. (laughs) It's like, it's just like, you just know you're like that person just by something about who knows what it is, but uh, I certainly don't. But sometimes, like, so I guess 
uh, my point is, I think often the charisma, I think that people, a lot of people, um, you know, have is not necessarily to do with what they say or how much they jump up and down and, 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 you know, how funny their jokes are or anything. It's often just an inherent part of how you, your facial expression, your body language, your, you know, goodness knows what else that it's, you don't, I don't think you necessarily, apart from like being in a positive frame of mind and, you know, bringing your best self and being well rested and all of those other sort of normal things, I don't think it's necessarily something we need to consciously, um, you know, like try to, you know, achieve. What, what are your thoughts? I think that that's true. And the thing that comes up for me when you said that, that I want to tie back to what you had said earlier. So earlier you had said, or you weren't sharing that there was the early part of your career, maybe where you felt more performative or you were more focused on that when you were teaching. And then as you've matured, and I relate to this as well, the focus has become much more on the client or the student. And so you've flipped, that's become more interesting to you. Um, and you've been able to use that as a way to keep yourself from feeling burnt out by turning that energy or that focus onto students and clients. Um, and I think that that is a natural progression. Um, and ideally, it, it like we have to find things that are interesting to us about this work because we all need a reason to show up in the morning or in the evening whenever you teach. Um, and I think that to your point from before that like that focus on what becomes interesting with you, it's natural that that's going to change over time. So I think about my own experience, like I came from a professional dance background and initially the choreography and the sort of spice of life, like all the props and the variety was the thing that was, that drew me to Pilates and therefore that is what I wanted to share with the people that I was working with in the beginning. But now as I've matured, um, that is the least interesting part to me and I'm so much more interested in the results that I'm able to sort of build and achieve with my clients and my students because the way that I work now is totally different and that's that's normal like in any any career I would say but especially in a career that involves teaching in some capacity there needs to be or there will be an evolution to how you choose to find interest in your work. Mm. You teach uh, pretty much exclusively uh, like one-on-one sessions these days, right? Yes, I do. So what does a, uh, a typical session look like? You know, what's the content of the session? Um, that's a great question. It really depends specifically on who I'm working with. So, for example, I have um, a pair of clients who are in their 70s and they, they are a romantic couple and they do Pilates together. Um, and they've been working with me for seven years at this point and their ongoing goals, uh, like fitness movement goals, and we always joke about this, but it's really true, is to just get on and off the toilet with comfort and ease for the rest of their lives. Um, and everything that we are doing in our sessions together are programmed around that as like our base. Um, and because they are older, like every time I see them, I see them three times a week, their bodies are different. They're not always feeling, you know, some days are achier than others. Some days are stronger and more energetic than others. And, um, what I find exciting about that type of work is that I have a set program in my mind. I know what we're working on. They know as well, we're doing these things together, but I can't come in necessarily well, I can't come in with a class plan, but it's always going to have to be adjusted in some way or another because it's going to depend on how those two people feel that day. And so what, like, I guess, uh, you know, to what extent do you employ props or to what extent do you, I think that, you know, the larger conversation seems to be here about variety versus uh, simplicity. Um, To what extent, you know, is variety part of what you do? Um, also a great question. We, in the beginning, like seven years ago, it was all about variety. Like we used all the props all the time and every session was like different. Um, and in this particular instant with this particular pair of clients, like we've really grown together over the years. And actually now a lot of what we do together is not at all about variety because we have, we communicate with each other continually about what it is we're trying to do. And it's kind of become a standing joke. Like Every single time I see them, we're doing some version of a squat 
Um, and we have like our things that we run through. And I would, I'll be honest and say that um, in a lot of the sessions that I teach now, even with the clients that I have that are not necessarily um, older than 65, um, a lot of what we do together is the same most of the time. And I don't mean it's like we're always doing some version of bridging. We are always doing some version of footwork. We're always planking at some point. Like there are these, um, I guess I would call them cornerstones or these very distinct, like my clients know what they are because we've worked on them together and they know and we talk about it and we communicate about it and I tell them like why we do this every single time. And the cool part is, especially at this point in my teaching, as my understanding of how the body works and how to build strength works is that we're doing the same things every time, but we're making them harder. So by adding weight or by adding stability challenges, like I teach the same, mostly I teach the same thing, to be honest. <laughs> we're doing bird dogs, we're doing planks, we're doing squats. And occasionally when we're feeling really festive, like we'll do a fun version of saw or something. I don't know. It's, it's, it's pretty, um, I don't want to call it mechanical. That makes it sound bad. And I'm not saying that I disagree with how we're doing this. It's what works. And I think that because I get to work with the clients that I have now so consistently, and we've all been working together for such a long amount of time, they're all really bought into this system as well because they feel and see it working in the ways that they want it to. And so back to my point from the very beginning of the podcast where I was talking about working out with my trainer, I literally do the same thing. I paint my trainer to watch me do the same exercise. Well, he gives me advice and tips and stuff, but like we do the same exercises together pretty much every single time or a version of them. Um, and that's basically what I'm doing with my clients right now. Right. And, you know, partly what they pay you for is just the routine and the discipline and the accountability. And partly what they pay you for is, you know, um, strategic, you know, progression of like improving the, you know, increasing or decreasing as their capabilities change. But really, very little of what they're paying you for is like variety and entertainment. Yeah. And I will say that, so my trainer does this for me as well. Um, and I do this for all of my clients. The other thing they're paying me for is when things aren't going well, like they have an injury or it's like not a good day, I can give suggestions and we can figure out together what is a better variation for the day of, of a squat. Or maybe, maybe I'm the person that gets to say, you know what, that's actually, it seems like it's really aggravating your knee today. Like we've done our maximum number of reps. We're going to move on. Like somebody else who's like a third person in the room who can help validate their, their decisions, I guess. Not that you need that, but it's just another person to talk to like consult with about their experience. And, um, I think that that is really valuable. Like, I think I'll say for myself as somebody who teaches movement, like, I love the fact that I have a trainer who I can go to and be like, hey, this is really bothering me. Like when I do this with my shoulder, do you have any any thoughts about another way that I could do that and like have somebody else think about it? Yeah, I was, I'm exactly the same. When I uh, had shoulder surgery last year, I, uh, you know, I know all of the literature on shoulder surgery rehab and all of that, but I hired a coach, I hired Adam Meekins and um, he basically told me stuff I already knew, but it was very reassuring to hear it from him and you know that gave me a lot of confidence <laughs> whereas um when it's when you're giving yourself advice it's very easy to second guess yourself and think like am i really feeling that or is you know does is that good pain or bad pain um etc et so it's really good to just have somebody who's kind of sitting there very calm going yeah no that's fine do another five you'll be right or like yeah no i think we should take take you know, call it a day for now i think that's you've worked hard enough um and it's really in retrospect it's all the exact same advice I would have given to anyone else if they were in my shoes. <laughs> but it's much easier when someone else gives you that advice who you trust rather than when you have to try and figure it out on your own, even if you actually know the answers. Yeah, I think that that's totally true. And then also another big, you just said the word trust. And I think that's the other thing that I wouldn't say my clients or anybody's clients are paying them for trust, but it's like we, the humans are very social creatures and like we want validation to a certain extent from another person um, for emotional comfort, I think, just as much as anything else. And it's, it's nice, I think, I'll say for myself as someone who has a trainer and then also 
for my clients to just feel like you're not alone in your decision making experience in that moment. Um, and to your point, like literally today, my ankle's been bothering me. And so my trainer was like, oh, you need to do like more calf raises and tibialis anterior stuff. And I was like, yeah, I know except I don't make myself do that. So he made me do it. And that's the value of paying money to somebody else to have them help you facilitate your exercise. Right. I want to just bring it back to the, the specifically to props, because it does feel like this conversation has become a broader one about, um, you know, our role as an, an instructor and what does it mean to be a good instructor and, you know, other things besides. But I want to think uh, again about props. This is something you mentioned off air before we started, is about the idea of specificity, um, which is the principle in exercise science that that exactly what you train is exactly what you get good at. So if you want to get good at a middle split, you've got to spend time in a middle split, in other words. And that we, I think sometimes we use props, and I know I've done this, use props to kind of make an exercise more challenging. You know, you can add a balance or coordination or instability or whatever, you know, challenge to the exercise by getting someone to squeeze something or kneel on something or, or whatever it might be. Um, but I think sometimes we lose track of like what the actual goal is and then we're of the exercise. Like if somebody's come to us to get strong, for example, and then we make the exercise harder by adding coordination challenge or, or you know, balance challenge, it's like, well, Coordination and balance are good things to have, but is that the actual outcome that this person you know, needs or, or wants, right? So would it just be better to add another spring? This, yes. Okay. So I'm really glad you brought us back to the original topic um, because that was actually my initial thinking about this as well. And a question when I was involved in teacher training that I used to always try to, and I do this for myself as well. Um, is just when you are going to use a prop, like asking the question, how is the use of this prop going to actually help my client or student do the skill that I want them to do better? And then if it's not, like, is this prop really going to help them connect some kind of like dot that I need them to connect for whatever I want their movement outcomes to be? Um, and it's really hard. It's really hard to be clear about whether or not a prop is actually improving a skill or gaining a result. Um, I'm thinking specifically about the magic circle, which I know there are scenarios where it can um, can be useful. But for the most part, especially now, and classical Pilates people, if you want to take this up with me later, that's fine. Like a lot of the magic circles we use now are like rubber and they don't really have a lot of resistance. And if you look at the original magic circles, they were like bare, uh, sorry, what are they called? Steel Beer bands. barrels, yeah. steel bands, right. With like cork, like you cannot actually, it's very difficult to actually squeeze that. And the rubber ones, you're like, Oh, I can clap my hands together. I have to say like, I've, I, you know, if you listen to this podcast before, you know, I've been critical of stop Pilates at times, but that's one thing I think they did really well. Like I haven't had a stop Pilates magic circle for a while. So maybe they've changed, but they always used to be made out of steel and they were really freaking strong. Like they were heavy. Like there was the actual weight of the thing was substantial. Plus it was really hard to squeeze. Like they, those things were very robust. Yeah. So case in point, it's like if you think that what you're helping um, your student or client achieve by using magic circle is like more strength because you've given them this magic circle to put between their inner thighs or whatever. It's like, are you really? I think we have to ask the question, is that really what you're doing? And it's hard to know that answer. Um, and I don't think that we talk about this enough in the Pilates industry because you something that you've said before that stuck with me. Um, is you said, I think it was in your episode where you talked about like actual skills that help you become a confident teacher. Um, just that the idea that like everything in Pilates land tends to be like a nail and a hammer. Like we're always going to the choreography and the 120 ways that you could use the magic circle, not like the conversation about when you use the magic circle in this way, what is actually happening? And is that actually achieving the result that you think it is like is it actually strength or is it muscle endurance or is it something totally different and I don't think that there has to be a value judgment around that just more honesty around what the actual answer is yeah and I I think the um the whole notion of like you know what's the best way to use this prop I actually think that is kind of a 
backwards way of thinking about it, that rather than starting with the prop and going, what's the purpose of the prop? We should actually start with the client and what's the client's goal and then ask, you know, what's the best way to achieve that goal? And maybe it's a prop and maybe it's not a prop. But, you know, for example, if the goal was to increase inner thigh strength, right, for whatever reason, that's something that was important to the client. Well, there's an, there's a, a reasonably inverse relationship between strength and stability. And what I mean by that is when you are on an in an unstable situation, so with a fitness circle or magic circle that wobbles around a bit, um, as opposed to like doing, say, a side split on a on a light spring on the reformer, where there's a lot less, there's no wobble to that, right? Um, when you're in a more unstable environment, you have to co-contract more of the muscles around the joint to maintain the stability. So you end up using more muscles, which can be a good thing, right? But that co-contraction of all those other muscles actually retards the ability of the main prime movers to generate force, right? So you actually can squeeze less hard when you're squeezing something unstable compared to when you're squeezing something stable. And this is the same, like if you think about it in a different context, like imagine doing a squat, right? Putting a, 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 holding a weight in your hand and doing a squat, right? Imagine doing it on the floor and now imagine doing it standing on a fitball, right? And you know, under which circumstance could you hold a heavier weight, <laughs> You know, <laughs> so it becomes pretty obvious when you think about it in that context, and that it's not, it's it's not any different for any unstable situation. So even like a lunge on the floor, you're going to be able to lift to lunge a heavier load than lunging with a foot on the reformer. You know, any any level of instability decreases the capacity of the prime mover muscles to to produce force because you're co-contracting many of the other muscles around the joint in order to maintain stability. And the cost of that is you know, maximal force in a single direction. And so if the goal is to increase strength, well, the best tool is not an unstable resistance, right? The best tool is a very stable resistance. So a reformer side split on a light spring would be a better choice for that person or even just a standing split on the floor, isometric, and hold it, right? And let's put a couple of dumbbells in your hands while you're doing that. That would be a really tough exercise, right? So the, basically, the less in the less stability, the less well, the more instability, the less we're going to improve strength from that movement. So you know, and that's not to say that you should never give someone a magic circle to squeeze between their knees because it's not going to help. Like it will improve their strength, but just it's not the best choice if your primary goal is to increase strength. Yeah, agreed. Um, I had a thought that just flew out of my head, but something that I wanted to go back to in relationship to what you were just saying that we did talk about earlier and I never looped it back is um, I had mentioned the idea of the concept of friction and the idea well the idea in my mind is in business often we talk about friction as being something that creates an obstacle to your client or desired client to purchasing whatever your product is and in on, in the online world specifically um it's like how many clicks until the person can actually get to the thing that you want them to get to and the reason that this relates to pilates in my mind um is because let's just take reformer pilates as an example there is already a huge amount of friction present in the fact that there is a reformer between the person and the result that they want to get, right? Like we forget sometimes as instructors that the reformer and any of the Pilates apparatus, there, there's a lot going on there. And yes, your students will gain familiarity the more that they engage with that item. But um, we've already set the bar for friction very high. Like there's already a lot of obstacles to them achieving the result and they can achieve amazing results with that piece of equipment. But my question for myself and everyone else is like, why add more friction to the scenario, which in my opinion could be the addition of all of these, like I'm going to call them fluffy props. I know they're not fluffy. Sometimes they can like be very useful, but why, why make it harder for the person to get the student to get the thing that they want, which is the result by adding reformer plus like 10 other props to the mix of your class. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, I think when I think about it, like the reformer is in fact 
a prop. It's an incredibly complex and versatile prop. And yes, there are those clients that after they've been with you for a while, they, they can you know pivot around and change the spring in a teaser position with one hand on the straps and do all the rest of it. But that's not the majority. The, you know, most clients I've worked with, you know, 10 years later, they're still figuring out which is the half spring and which is the, the full spring. <laughs> you know? I, um, yeah, I teach a bunch of uh, some corporate clients and like, I cannot tell you how many times we've talked about spring setting, like named all the exercises. Okay. We're going to do our long stretch. Get your machine ready for long stretch. Nobody moves like, and we've done it hundreds of times, hundreds of times. The setup is the same every single time. And they still need me to prompt them. How many springs, how many springs are you leaving off and how many are you taking off? So I think that, um, Sometimes as people who engage with the equipment, be it props or apparatus, all of the time, like that's our job, that's what we do every day, we forget that there's so much information that went into your 400, whatever, how many hours of training you did to become a Pilates instructor, the hours and time and money that you invested in becoming a Pilates instructor, that is it's so much. So you have this habitual knowledge of how everything should work, but your clients don't. So it's probably not boring to them if you have to do the same thing or something close to the same thing the majority of the time that you work together. Right. And, you know, you, dear listener, by virtue of the fact that you are a Pilates instructor, like pretty much by definition, you are like the elite you know, cream of your clients, you know, if you think of all of your clients, like the 1% of your clients who are like the absolute most passionate, most best, most enthusiastic, most sharp early, you know, do all the things, you know, suck your drive knowledge, like all of that stuff, that was you. And that's why you became a Pilates instructor. And so you have that level of passion and excitement and inherent interest in all of the nuances of Pilates. But, you know, 95% of your clients are not cut from that same cloth. They like Pilates because it's a convenient and fun way to, you know, get fit and, you know, keep healthy. But it's like it, they're, most of their week, they're not like, you know, dreaming about Pilates and <laughs> listening to Pilates podcasts. <laughs> no, most of them are wandering into this studio, like on their iWatch, like texting back their nanny and like trying to organize all of these things. They're probably not even listening to you until at least like five minutes into your right. session. <laughs> Right. And so the fact that, you know, like the fact, dear, like, dear listener, that you potentially get bored with like teaching footwork for the umpteenth time in a row, or the fact that you like love the magic circle because of the versatility that you can use it for different exercises to in challenge balance or control or strength or endurance or, you know, all of the above, like your clients are probably like, you know, some of your clients will share that love and that, you know, that, that inherent excitement about it all. But a lot of your clients will just be like, you know, groan, here comes the magic circle again, or, or like, oh, which was the magic circle again? Like, like your, a lot of your clients don't have that same level of, of, of passion about Pilates that you do, which is fine. It's normal. Like that's why you're a Pilates instructor and they're, they're a lawyer or a doctor or a restaurant server. Um, but like the fact that you're bored or the fact that you find it interesting doesn't necessarily affect what the experience of your clients. I think that's true. And it, to be quite honest, like it's a little similar in educate in the education world outside of Pilates, like just regular academic education. Um, you know, we're always, we're repeating a lot of the same things over and over until all the students prove to us that they have gained the concept that we want them to achieve. So that's just how learning works. I think like that's a part of the process of learning. Um, and I think you've actually said this, Raf, you said something along the lines of like learning is like actually like there has to be some kind of change that occurs. Like there's a, I forget. But Relatively said permanent something like, change in skill over time as a result of practice. That one, that is what learning is, right? So I think for, and then also for just teaching in general, um, and this might come from maturity and time, but like my goals now are always fewer cues, fewer equipment changes, fewer props, just fewer barriers to the people who are moving, getting, getting to the movement experience faster mm -hmm. because like, that's why they're there. Um, and that's what they want. I think, um, I, I really like the, I don't, I don't know if it's a metaphor or a, a parallel of, 
a surgeon, right? You know, that's a highly skilled profession. So, you know, you have to go to university for a dozen years, um, do a residency, all the rest of it. Uh, and then you end up specializing in some particular thing like, you know, thoracic surgery or knee surgery, just say you're a knee surgeon, right? And you end up doing like knee replacements, which is about a two-hour procedure, right? So you end up doing like three a day, four days a week for 25 years, right? Knee replacements. And then the rest of the time you're consulting and, you know, whatever. It's like, I would, I want to have that surgeon who's done, you know, three knee replacements a day, four days a week for the last 20 years. I want to have that person do my knee surgery, right? But I don't want to have them like experimenting with new, like crazy techniques or, <laughs> you know, I want them to do the same thing they've already done 15,000 times before. And I be number 15,001. It's like, so it's, I, I just want this to be so routine for that person that they could do it, you know, almost in their sleep. You know, that's my definition of like, that's, that, that's somebody I would want to have, you know, operate on my body. And by the same token, like if I go to a restaurant, I want a, a chef that's cooked that dish 10,000 times before, and they just know exactly the right proportions, cooking time, temperature, portion size, like all of that stuff is just so refined by just thousands and thousands of reps of, of just, you know, practice. And I think, you know, in if we think about those other kind of artisanal or professional situations, like I want my teeth filled by a dentist who's done that thousands of times before, you know, um, and I don't want anything fancy, you know, I just want, give me the plain vanilla version, but just done really, really, really well. So I, I feel safe and confident. I know I'm getting the best possible result. And I think if we frame it in that, in those terms as Pilates instructors, I think there's something useful for us there that I think, you know, that's what many clients, you know, want as well is they just want, they, they don't want something different. They just want the, the thing they want. They want to feel stronger and get on and off the toilet, you know, comfortably, right? They just, but they just want the best, easiest, most, you know, uh, most trustworthy, you know, version of that. Yeah. No bells and whistles. The bell, I think the point is the bells and whistles are really overrated they could be super fun, but they're not the, they're, I think they're a distraction from the actual essence of what it is that makes people like Pilates. Um, you had actually asked me a question, Raph, that I've been thinking about. Um, you had said, like, what do you think it is about Pilates that makes everybody so crazy about it because it is this phenomena that it's like this it, this huge niche industry everyone's really into it and I don't necessarily have a good answer for that yet but I think that um, the people that I know who, the clients and the people that I know who have stayed with Pilates for decades like I have a client who's literally been doing Pilates since it not since it was invented, that would be impossible, but for like her whole life, like she studied with Kathy Grant, she studied with Ron Fletcher, she's like did all the elders and now she's in her late 70s. Um, she still does Pilates and it's because she she likes the result that she gets from Pilates. Like she doesn't need me to reinvent the wheel for her. Like she touched the wheel that I learned about practically. Um I think that it's the it's the consistency and there's something about like knowing what to expect like our world in general is so unpredictable in these days and these times and I find there to be something extremely comforting about knowing that you're going to Pilates and like kind of having an expectation for what that entails and what the outcome of that experience is going to be which has a lot to do with the fact that you're probably going to do bridges you're probably going to do footwork you're probably going to do 100 and like that's nice. Right. I was, I was just trying to think of a, a food metaphor as you were talking there. Because I think like when you said bells and whistles are overrated, I, I, I agree. I think that was a great way of putting it. And I was, I was reminded of like uh, when I go to get ice cream these days, I'm not sure if you have it in the, in the States, but there's this real f uh, fashion at the moment for gelato places here in Australia where they have just all the amazing flavors. Like you like think of some really like complicated, you know, baked dish or something like, you know, I know, Bomb Alaska or, you know, chocolate fudge, salted caramel brownies or whatever. And then there's an ice cream flavor of it. Uh, do you have that in the States? 
we we have gelato we don't have so many fancy gelatos like not the variety of flavor right and it's it's like it's quite astonishing you know what you can find here in just walking into the local ice cream shop um but I often find myself, I'm, you know, presented with all of that variety and splendor, and I end up going for just like chocolate and lemon, or you know, like just the basic. Yeah, you like you have a spoon and you taste the like really exotic one, but then ultimately you want to like commit to the one that you feel sure about. Right, because it's a sure bet. You know, it's a classic combination for a reason. You know, and and, and I think that's that's the same with with the Pilates repertoire, right? Like it's it's. It's been the way it has for a hundred years, you know, thereabouts, you know, for a reason. It doesn't mean that we have to use it, you know, cut from whole cloth and use every part of it every time. But I think that there's a lot to be said for being really good at the basics and just using, you know, repeating those, you know, basically with every client. Yeah. And there's other, in other movement modalities, like right now I'm thinking specifically of ballet, there are examples of that. Like if for anyone who's not a dancer, if you take a ballet class, you always start in first position every single time. Like you're going to start in first position, second position, third, fourth, and fifth, every single class you ever take. Um, And, you know, there's a system, it's obviously different type of movement than Pilates, but there is this structure. And I think it's the structure you know, we can, we do move our bodies in the outside world all of the time. And like, you don't technically need somebody to tell you how to move your body to move it. Um, But if you want the benefit, and I think a lot of us do, of finding that flow state that we were talking about earlier, and then also getting some type of like physical exercise, health, but benefit related result, um, having a system to do that through is extremely helpful. And I think that is one of the things about Pilates that's really awesome um, and and something we should lean into more. You don't have to be rigid and like, I think there can be freedom and gray area in all of this, but for the instructor out there who feels like they're bored with themselves or their clients are bored or like they need to bring more bells and whistles into the Pilates classroom to make things feel interesting and valuable. Um, if it liberates you at all, I just want to tell you that you don't, like you don't have to, <laughs> like you really could just do mostly the same thing right. each time. And and I would say to that person, if you're out there, you know, feeling bored or like, or, you know, worrying that your clients are feeling bored, I would say add more challenge and challenge of the thing that they came to you for help with, right? So whether that's strength or flexibility or balance or, you know, whatever it might be, like add more springs or take more springs off to make the load heavier or just increase the range of motion and challenge their flexibility more. And in that challenge and and overcoming that challenge and progressing and improving, that's what will get them excited and, and interested you know, to, to come back because like, oh, you know, I want to see if I can reach even further this time because, you know, I almost did the splits last week and that was really exciting, you know. So I, I think, yeah, if if you feel like your clients are getting bored, like I would say maybe you're, that's a sign that you're not challenging them sufficiently. Yeah, go for that one-minute plank. Yeah. One-minute plank holds. <laughs> Good talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So 
rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.